0: Welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our much appreciated radio syndicate partners. My name is David Franklin Erwin Hostetter and Stefan Christian Erwin Hostetter and Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour are not here this week and neither am I. We're playing an interview that I did a couple of years ago with Professor Stephen Sharper. So if you've been listening to the show for For several years, you may have heard this already, about nature, love, and the environmental movement. My name is David Hostetter. I am joined once again by Professor Stephen Sharper. This will be a continuation of a discussion we had last year, which can also be found on the website under the title Learning to Love, if you'd like to get some context about the series of questions I'm going to lay on the man today. So, Professor Stephen Sharper is a professor of environmental studies, religious studies, and anthropology at the University of Toronto and the University of Toronto-Mississauga, as well as the co-editor of The Natural City, Re-Envisioning Human Settlements, and the author of For Earth's Sake, Toward a Passionate Ecology. So, thank you, Stephen Sharper, for joining us once again.
1: Thanks for having me, David. I'm going
0: to start in with a biodiversity study question, apocalyptic question. So, on the 6th of May, 2019 the United Nations uh, Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, put out a first-of-its-kind, or at least first-of-its-scale, assessment of global biodiversity loss. The fourth key message of the report's summary for policymakers is that, quote, nature can be conserved, restored, and used sustainably while simultaneously meeting other global societal goals through urgent and concerted efforts fostering transformative change they then list eight of what they term key leverage points for achieving this, the first of which is, quote, visions of a good life. My question is, what do you make of this statement? And do you think that changing one's vision of a good life has anything to do with changing how one is in the habit of experiencing the world? Well, thank you, David.
1: That's a great question. And the fact that this notion of a good life was introduced in a scientific report shows a kind of both awakening to the role of values, spiritual traditions and visions in forming a new narrative. Scientists over the years have told me, particularly in the area of climate science, how disturbed they get when they produce the data, they bring it forward and either it's denigrated, ignored or not acted upon. And many say we really need a new vision. We need a new way of being human. That's not our job. We are doing the data analysis, we are doing the computer modeling, we are doing the scientific research. But we need people whose task it is to envision a new future, to take our data and begin to think this holistically. So the fact that in this document they're talking about living well is reflective of what's happening at many levels in the environmental movement. For example, in Latin America, there's the Bien Vivir movement in Ecuador, for example, and also in Bolivia. The role of indigenous values and of Mother Earth now have a constitutional place in these Latin American countries. And this notion of Bien Vivir, of living well, is articulated in terms of a holistic, sustainable, and integrative flourishing future. So It's going beyond the realm of philosophers, religious studies, indigenous cultures, into policy and now even scientific recommendations. This, to me, is a very hopeful sign. It's also a sign of how desperate we're becoming as well. (laughs) So on both fronts, it has alacrity. But nonetheless, I find this very encouraging. Interestingly, I think last time we may have talked about Pope Francis's 2015 encyclical, Laudato Mm. Si', the first papal teaching on climate change. And I've interviewed a number of scientists as a result of that document, and they were just so excited and so relieved that that document came out because they said, finally, someone of the stature of the Pope is making a moral argument based on the scientific data that we've been collecting, harvesting, reporting on, and promulgating for decades. He's the first major religious figure at that level, to do this kind of analysis based on scientific data of climate change. So they're saying, in a sense, we can lead the horse to water, but we can't make it drink. We can lead people to the scientific data, but we can't make that moral-spiritual argument. People like the Pope and the Green Patriarch, Bartholomew, have been also doing this. So these are very prominent spiritual religious leaders who are taking that scientific data and reflecting on what this means to be human at this time.
0: So you would agree that what one thinks of as the human being uh, has a potentially direct relationship with how one treats the planet?
1: I think so. And we're seeing now that we're trying to overcome, in the words of some indigenous leaders, the disease of disconnection, culturally, metaphysically, scientifically, politically. Part of the way we see ourselves as a human in large part in modern Western thought has been somewhat separate from the natural world, Mm. particularly in early modernity and beyond, and increasing with the scientific revolution and the industrial revolutions. Somehow we thought that we could be separate from that which we were destroying, that we could pollute the waters and not get sick, that we could contaminate the air and not feel its effects, that we could blow out whole ecosystems and not feel the pinch in terms of our food supplies or our wellness. We're now trying to overcome that disease of disconnection. And part of that is understanding our place, Mm -hmm. that we are deeply interconnected, despite our Emphasis on our intelligence and how we can master and control nature and how we can change rivers and dam whole Systems of waterways in northern Quebec and think that this is going to be good for society We're now realizing that this is not good for society. It's not good for our physical health It's not good for our wellness and our well-being It's not good for other ecosystems and that we are humans. That means we're earthlings that we belong to the Earth. In the ancient Hebrew texts, Adam, it comes from Adama, the Earth. Adam is Earthling. We now talk about how we can terraform Mars or destroy this planet and move to some other planet or equal. Eco- this is nonsense. We need the Earth. We are grounded on the Earth. We are Adama. we are Earthlings. Our whole imaginations, our whole biological systems, our whole being relate to this planet. That's who we are. And this is now being re-examined in light of this kind of environmental crisis that we're experiencing. We're now realizing there is no away, there is no place that we can just simply dump our detritus at and walk away with impunity. That means that we are re-understanding our roles as deeply interconnected, something many Aboriginal traditions and Indigenous traditions have understood and taught, many Asian traditions and even Judeo-Western Christian traditions have taught, but much of that thinking has been steamrolled and left as roadkill on our advance toward progress.
0: Mm -hmm. And um, I believe last time we spoke, you characterized this as experiencing the divine within the unfolding of nature. You suggested that this can be done regardless of religious or spiritual affiliations. So I'm wondering, do you have any sense of a method for orienting ourselves towards this experience?
1: I think the answer is as diversified as the human community. Hmm. But there are a few guideposts, perhaps, that might be useful to suggest. One suggestion that is coming out from many is really dwelling in nature. So we have the forest bathing movement, for example, prominent in Europe and now even in North America. People spending time in forests. And we're realizing that this isn't simply a kind of uh, air sets spiritual high that is actually releasing certain chemicals in our brain that help us be balanced and well. That, that exchange also of oxygen and carbon dioxide, that kind of dance that we're involved in with the trees, etc., is very important for our well-being in a way that we hadn't realized before. So both at a metaphysical level, at an aesthetic level, but also at a neuroscientific level, this is very important. So spending time in nature is being seen as very important. Mm. Secondly, exposing ourselves to other parts of nature. So even having plants in one's apartment or office, we're realizing is very important. We may have talked about Richard Louvre in his book, Last Child in the Woods, Overcoming Nature Deficit Disorder in Our Children. And in that groundbreaking book, he harvests a whole array of psychological medical studies that show that when children who are suffering from attention deficit disorder, depression, and other psychological maladies, when they are exposed to nature, even in a backyard climbing a tree, it can improve them dramatically. So Scotland, as a result in part of that research, is now authorized, in a sense it's doctors, to do nature medicine, nature prescriptions. This was being done kind of imagistically in certain places, But now Scotland is actually acknowledging the role of nature in healing. And doctors can practice nature medicine as Western scientifically trained physicians. Mm. So this is interesting to see how this is moving. So that's one thing, being exposed to other than human, more than human realities. A second dimension, I think, is listening and listening to nature when you're in it, finding places to be still and to kind of just meditate on your moment. Mindfulness can be part of this. I just had a graduate student, Samir Kanji, do a whole master's of science and sustainability management research paper on the connection between mindfulness and sustainability. And taking time to be mindful and meditate can help us with consumerism, because some of these studies show that the more mindful you are, the less consumer driven you are, mm. because sometimes consumerism, of course, has a compulsive dimension, and mindfulness can help ameliorate that effect. Also, a sense of contentment and well being, and having a better perspective so that you're not acting out of frustration, desperation, compulsion, that you're mindfully engaging with nature, with your resources, with your consumerism. So, some form of listening and meditation i think is very important thirdly i kind of am working on the pp principle personal and political <laughs> so on the one hand yes we make changes in our own lives whether it's spending time in nature getting rid of the car reducing our ecological footprint not wasting water etc all important but there's the social and political dimension too so one without the other is lopsided so How do we advocate for structural change? How do we do that at a political and economic level? So both work in tandem in a kind of praxis, the personal and political. The other element of the PP principle is progress, not perfection. So just because your personal work and your political work may not change the world overnight, that's not the aim. Ultimately, it's progress. Perfection won't be achieved in this world. And if we think that the perfect ideal has to be achieved, otherwise it's futile many of us will just unplug become disengaged and jaded so these steps are important because part of it is a sustaining life way how do we find a sustaining life way a keynote in a lot of these happiness studies what makes us happy one of the key features much more than money after you reach a certain economic standard is the quality of relationships and that's relationships not only among humans, but between ourselves and animals, ourselves and our natural systems, our ecosystems, etc. So, spending time in nurturing those relationships are key. So, just as we hang out with friends and develop bonds just by hanging, we also develop bonds by dwelling with certain parts of the ecosystem, by getting to know a particular stretch of woods, or parkland, or backyard, even, or species. And hanging out and developing friendships, these are important as well for our entire well-being. We're finding out.
0: Now, I'm going to, I think, dwell for a second on something you may have already moved on from. But I'm uh, wondering, does this experience of natural divinity, do you believe that it requires that we actually experience our bodies in a different way? Do we need to interpret our bodies in a different way? Are we actually looking for new sensations That is, we actually have to feel our existence in in a new way.
1: That's a rich vein of inquiry. I feel that we can find ecstasy in nature and cosmological awareness. And here I'm influenced by the work of Thomas Berry, a cultural historian who died 10 years ago this year and Tom Barry was an advisor to Al Gore, twice brought to the Clinton White House to advise President Bill Clinton on environmental issues. And his archives are now at Harvard University. And his stock rises every year, it seems, because what he was articulating 30 years ago is now being seen as very important. And one thing he talked about was if we don't find ecstasy in nature, we're going to seek it elsewhere, whether through drugs, intense experiences, you know, kind of extreme activities. But it is there in our natural connection to the cosmos. There's an ecstasy in many of our experiences in nature and a high. And I remember even as a little boy running with my friends through these Deep woods, and you know, we challenge ourselves by jumping over parts of waterfalls where if you fell it'd be a ten-foot drop and mm-hmm. climbing trees that are sixty feet tall with no parents within five miles, like what are you doing? Well, there was a kind of <laughs> it was extreme behavior in a sense, but it was finding our limits and having the exhilaration of challenging those limits within a natural setting. So that's a physical dimension of this relationality. Whether that has to be there, I'm not sure, but I think. It is embodied at some level, yes. And the fact that we're now realizing that when we witness a sunset, there are researchers showing that certain chemicals are released in the brain that are very important for our equilibrium psychically. Mm -hmm. That is a physical response to a visual natural cue. So I think that there is a physical dimension that is tied to a spiritual dimension. And when we occlude ourselves or limit ourselves from those experiences, I think in some way we become truncated as individuals. So if we can't look up at a star-strewn sky because of light pollution or air pollution, if we don't have a relationship with our Big Dippers and our larger stellar beauties, that limits us as a person. And what's been very interesting here in Canada and North America and elsewhere is the dark sky movement. And they are preserving areas in Canada and elsewhere from light pollution. And this is being done at a governmental level. And when you look at the arguments put forth by the ministers of culture and environment, they are talking about the spiritual and cultural richness of looking at the stars and how that has formed the imaginations of the humans ever since we as unfeathered bipeds stood erect to look at a night sky. This is so important for our narrative imaginations, for our cultural transformations, and for envisioning a new future. What happens when we can't do that? Well, I think we become perverse. And I think the fact that there is so much dystopian entertainment and dystopian thinking now, post-apocalyptic Mad Max scenarios, this is a product of occlusion i think in fact that we're not being exposed to the life-giving flourishing energies of the planet to the extent that we should Mm -hmm. and this turns us into i think a very hardened and somewhat deadened imaginary space
0: So I'm just going to continue hammering down on this point of methodology because it intrigues me. Um, So there are some traditions that talk about the development of what they would call new organs of perception, sometimes thought of as subtle organs that need to be developed by orienting one's thought in a different way or by applying specific techniques for the removal of mental blockages like habitual anger or frustration. Now, Obviously, overcoming emotional or psychological snares is good in many contexts, but I'm not certain if this needs to go along with the idea of systematically developing new methods of perception. Walt Whitman, for instance, who made no distinction between nature and divinity, would say that these extra considerations are not needed and are possibly detrimental, preferring instead to focus on the bare simplicity of the natural world as it comes to the senses. So my question is, do you think it makes sense to systematically orient oneself in a new way, uh, to a new way of appreciating the natural world by applying specific methods and testing their efficacy, or do you favor an intuitive approach? And where do you think someone like Thomas Berry or even Francis of Assisi might
1: fall uh, on this? I think that just as we have a biodiversity in our natural ecosystems, that there might be a biodiversity of responses to that question i think in some cases the intuitive simple approach can resonate very well with people it can be very effective and i have a recently minted phd student mark hathaway who did a major study on cultivating ecological wisdom and he interviewed okay. people from around the world including vandana shiva fritjof kapra shamans from latin america as well as people from north america ireland etc who had all developed a certain ecological activism and awareness and he talked to them about how they did that and for many of them particularly those who i would say had that more intuitive approach having that exposure to nature as children was key whether that kind of approach works for those who did not have that kind of background as children becomes an open question. So I think there can be a variety of approaches. In terms of pragmatism, I think that connection to a practice and particularly something relating to the earth, to soil, to air, to trees, is very important for our centering. One thing that's come out of the meditation movement of John Kabat-Zinn and his Full Catastrophe Living practice which is now actually endorsed by the Ontario uh, Medical Establishment. Mm-hmm. So those courses are covered by OHIP, you know, it's Ontario Health Insurance, because they're seen as stress-reducing. These are meditative practices. But mm-hmm. when that book first came out 25, 30 years ago, they knew it was working, but they didn't know how. Now they realize that there are new neural pathways being developed in one's brain as a result of these meditation practices. They are also seeing it in programs such as al-anon or marijuana anonymous the practicing of the steps is leading to new neural pathways Mm. one researcher dr heidi walk who teaches this meditation here in toronto likens it to a ski hill so you go to the top of a ski hill fresh snow has just fallen you're the first on the slopes and you go down and then you begin to create a pathway. Well, after so many have done that, all of these groove trails are there, it's hard to find a new one. Mm. If you try to go new, you go back into that old groove one. Creating new neural pathways is akin to finding new places to go down that ski hill in your mind. And if you slide back into the well-worn groove, there's ways of getting back. So those practices have a variety of sources, but this is a kind of new insight about how people can change. And I think the cultivating ecological wisdom work that Mark Hathaway is talking about is trying to find out different ways that that can be done. And some of the people that he was interviewing also talked about the role of indigenous medicines and ayahuasca and other kinds of drugs that can help in that process under Important cultural traditions, and not a Yahooism kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the control, and I'm not advocating that use, but I'm just mm. saying that was something that came out of his research that is also being reflected in other research. But what I'm saying is there are multiplicity of approaches to mm. this. I think that depend on people's backgrounds, culturally, familiarly, etc. So I think we might have a plethora of ways, but I think a practice is important something that gets into a habit of being it's said that thoreau would walk four hours a day right Mm. in his quest to simplify his life but he in his essay walking just talks about the importance of just walking i've had students come up to me and say after reading richard louvre or hearing about the importance of being in nature oh my dad has to walk two hours a day outside otherwise he goes squirrely." i had one priest i was giving a retreat in southern ontario And he came up to me and he said, I have been diagnosed with depression. Unless I lie on the ground and make contact on the ground for a half an hour a day, I become depressed. The earth has become his antidote to despair. So you hear this just anecdotally. And this is something that has worked for these folks in a way that they found on their own but it's a practice connecting them mm. to another source of energy. So I think something habitual is important in this. So relating this to Tom Berry and St. Francis of Assisi, both priests, both coming from the Catholic tradition, mm. they were tied into a deep spiritual interconnection with all of life. So for Francis, of course, this Mother Earth, terms that he used brother-son, sister-moon, brother-wolf, were not metaphorical. This was actual. These are actual relationships, Mm -hmm. as we hear in many indigenous traditions. I mean, this is one place where indigenous thinking and Roman Catholic thinking hold hands. Same language, Mother Earth, brother-son, sister-moon, brother-wolf, and talking to brother-wolf. So the lore, of course, is that when brother-wolf was coming into town and eating all the livestock, St. Francis went out to talk to Brother Wolf and said, God has given you all this wild game. You have the rabbits, you have all these other birds, etc. that you can eat. This livestock is not for you. And if you continue this, you will be killed. This is not where you belong, but you have this space. That's your place. Finding your place is your challenge or giving sermons to birds. I mean, if we saw a priest at St. Michael's College at <laughs> U of T with his Roman God giving sermons to birds, you know, like a, what is he on? And can we call the doctor, You know, lang, lang, get him out of here. That's what St. Francis did. And yet what's important now, I think, is people like St. Francis, who, according to some theologians, were classified along with dopey, doc, sleepy, and bashful in the panoply of Christian saints, <laughs> like real weirdos. Okay, that stuff on simplicity and the poor, yeah, that's good. But talking to birds and this (laughs) brother-son stuff? Nuts! Well, we're now realizing that maybe he had something there. Maybe he wasn't as beyond the pale as we thought. Maybe, actually, he had something important to teach us today. And that's why Pope Francis is fascinating, because he's the first pope to take the name Francis explicitly for the environmental and social justice simplicity teachings. So there is a kinship between the work of Thomas Berry and St. Francis in terms of that awe and reverence and communicative dimension with all reality. Thomas Berry says the universe is a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. And he's building on post-Einsteinian science. So he looks at the Big Bang, the what he calls primordial flaring forth of some 14.2 billion years ago, whenever that was, as a key revelatory moment in terms of the divine. Revelatory. Revelatory. So that the universe is the primary source of divine revelation. Scripture comes later in response to that beauty. So when we flip it and think that what we've written as humans is more important than what God wrote as cosmos, we get wonked out and we get the environmental crisis. We have to understand that the primary source of revelation is the universe. That's where awe, wonder, jaw-dropping amazement come from. And that's where our traditions come from. When we lose sight of that, we become misguided.
0: We talked about uh, William Blake a little bit Mm -hmm. last time we spoke, and he was of the belief that he said, I must create my own system or be enslaved by another man's. So in his final and longest poem, Jerusalem, he constructs this elaborate symbolic opera, which, although it's chaotic, does appear to have a kind of system at its core, and has led some scholars like Northrop Frye to opine that Blake invented the psychologies of both Freud and Jung a century in advance. And yet, at the end of the massive poem, Blake takes it all away again and essentially says, this was all me and my imagination. Uh, While you may think it's profound, it's essentially my own creation. And now Christianity was at the core of Blake's vision, even if he might be more properly considered a pantheist, and he opens up this Bible-inspired visionary space and then walks away with it. So Blake did not need a church, nor did he want to impose his system on others. So if one does have this direct avenue to the divine through the very unfolding of nature, as Blake believed and as you've stated, and this happens on a subjective level, what precisely is the role or justification for religious institutions?
1: Well, that's penetrating. And I think one role that religious institutions play is a communal context for those individual epiphanies and visions, that none of us fly solo on this planet. And We are a gregarious species, (laughs) and we need to be in community. While we can take time out in a hermitage, we can take time out on retreat, we can find places where we can be alone with our thoughts and in a religious context be still and know that God is God. Ultimately, we are called to be in community and to understand the relationship of our thought to other people's thought. Because if we don't have that, then we can become disengaged, isolated, and maybe dysfunctional. Because we become so beyond the pale that we cannot relate to the rest of the human family or to the rest of our biotic community. So one role that I think religions can play is a safe community of shared experience and support. The Dalai Lama of tibet was once interviewed by bill moyers in a video called spirit and nature from 1990 and in his conversation with bill moyers and in his presentation at this conference at middlebury vermont he raised this question do we need religion why do we need religion he said we need religion to create a good heart compassion we don't need religion for philosophy Mm -hmm. philosophy can do that on its own Mm -hmm. it can provide many of the categories but religion is important to provide a good heart, compassion. He went on to say, though, if, if it doesn't create compassion, we don't need it. I mean, in a sense, taking care of the planet in the environmental context is nothing sacred. It's like taking care of our own home. It's the way bees do, other insects, other animals, they take care of their home. That is not something that you need religion for. In fact, if religion deviates from that taking care it's a problem. So there can be correctives in religion, but compassionate community in which to embed our dreams and visions, I think can be an important role for religion. Mm. So I do have a
0: couple of quotes from Thomas Berry here for you. Lovely. <laughs> um, so I have this Thomas Berry quote where he says, the universe must be experienced as the great self. Each is fulfilled in the other. The great self is fulfilled in the individual self And the individual self is fulfilled in the great self. Alienation is overcome as soon as we experience this surge of energy from the source that has brought the universe through the centuries. New fields of energy become available to support the human venture. These new energies find expression and support in celebration, for in the end the universe can only be explained in terms of celebration. It is all an exuberant expression of existence itself." So if we take uh, him at his word, and if existence itself is exuberant and celebratory, I wonder how it can be that we could have have ever become alienated from the natural world, being obviously a, a central part of existence itself.
1: Well, I think that circles back to that notion that certain indigenous elders have talked about in terms of the disease of disconnection. When we see ourselves as separate from that celebratory reality, And as people that have to master and conquer it as part of our role, well, this, I think, leads to a disease, um, not only of disconnection, but of domination, of enforced servitude for other than human reality. Look at our factory farming. Look at how we've treated animals over the centuries in servitude to the human. Look how we're continuing to destroy wetlands just north of Toronto when all of our turtle species in this province are either threatened or endangered. Mm -hmm. And each cheek-to-jowl development that's going up in Vaughan and north of that is draining water systems that are important for habitat for turtles, amphibians, etc. We still have this idea in our head. So this notion of disconnection, that somehow we're not connected to those realities, can lead to alienation. Because what do we have left when we've taken all the sounds of spring? and turned it into cars pulling into drive-throughs at Tim Hortons and A&Ws. We have exhaust and sounds of cars, rather than the sounds of spring peepers, and the birdsong of robins and red-winged blackbirds. Well, you're going to feel alienated if that's Mm. your surrounding. Mm.
0: I'm wondering if you have an idea of where the mistake or the malfunction comes in. Because the last time we spoke, uh, you mentioned James Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis, Mm -hmm. which is that all systems of life on Earth work together to sustain the greater global ecosystem. If this is so, how can it be that humankind, uh, what we consider to be the most intelligent or conscious life form, is going against that and hurting the Earth's prospects for future life? So how can it be that human beings have broken the hypothesized harmony, or how can the Gaia system, if it is self-regulating, have created something that threatens the existence
1: of that very system. If I could answer that question, David, I would be hovering (laughs) in some kind of reality of nirvana that would be a new understanding of the cosmos. Mm. It's a great question and one that we continually ask and are mystified by. Mm. It's almost like, how can someone with all these amazing privileges, a great upbringing, a wonderful home, loving family, throw one's life away? through dissolute living or drugs or self-destructive behavior. How mm-hmm. could you do that? That's, there's a mystery there. And there's a mystery with the role of the human. Because on the one hand, we have this incredible power to destroy and raise the entire ecosystem. But on the other hand, we're totally dependent on it. And if we do that, we can actually commit kind of collective suicide. So we're on this strange seesaw, liminal space of dependence <laughs> and power. And I think that the answer to that is always going to be elusive. But as we begin to see ourselves as part of Gaia, as part of nature, as part of another system, more and more we're going to see interesting dimensions of restoration. And that has begun to happen. One positive thing about being older in the environmental movement is you see changes that were incipient 20 or 30 years ago and now have gained momentum. I talked earlier about how Tom Berry's ideas are now experiencing more widespread acceptance. Mm. Uh, You're seeing that with a variety of things. And now that climate change is in our backyards, in the forest fires of Alberta, in the flooding on Toronto Island, in the whipsawing weather patterns that the Toronto Star is now finally reporting on, seriously... (laughs) You're beginning to see people not in denial, but in question mode. What are we doing? What should we be doing? What in the world can we do? And this is part of the re-examination of the human that we have to experience. There is a famous climate scientist, Tim Flannery from Australia. He wrote The Weathermakers about 15 years ago. Very important climate change book. He said he got so depressed that he couldn't write for 10 years. But then he came out with his next book, An Atmosphere of Hope. And there were several things that led him to a new hopeful attitude. It's again what we're talking about. As you get the gray hairs in this movie, <laughs> uh, certain signs of hope emerge. <laughs> and one of them was people are experiencing climate change wherever they are now. It's not just something happening in Tuvalu or the Maldives or in you know, Pacific Island nations that are being overrun by rising sea levels. People are seeing it in their wet basements. They're seeing it in dramatic downpours in times when they shouldn't have incredible snowstorms because the jet stream has been affected and these storms linger and they don't move. They're seeing it in chaotic tornadoes and hurricanes that never used to come in their spaces. So he said that's a sign of hope that it's the denial industry is having much more difficulty in pushing that agenda. Secondly, he noted that When he was writing the book, for the first time, the World Economic Forum had reported that in that year, maybe 2015, 2016, around there, global economic growth had increased, but greenhouse gas emissions had flatlined. Mm. That's the first time in 40 years that happened. So it showed that something was happening, whether it was photovoltaics in China, alternative energies in Europe or the United States, something was happening to flatline that equation, which was another positive sign. And I think what we're seeing now is new possibilities. So there's a correlation between new visions and the way we see ourselves and the way we implement policies. So, for example, when the Gaia theory was proposed as a hypothesis by James Lovelock in the late 60s, early 70s, many neo-Darwinian biologists, such as Richard Dawkins, just poo-pooed it. They Mm -hmm. said, this is absurd. Cooperation isn't part of nature. Bred in tooth and claw competition, and survival of the fittest through natural selection. In 1988 or so, there was a global Chapman conference where it was put on trial, and James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis from Boston University, who are proponents of Gaia, faced off against Richard Dawkins and other neo Darwinians in this argument. No one won the debate. <laughs> but what happened afterwards, and this, you know, I don't know what the The count is now, but when I did the count, there were over 120 scientifically peer-reviewed articles on Gaia Mm. after that conference. Most of them not talking about whether it's true or not, Mm -hmm. but most of them saying, if we look at Gaia, it changes the way we look at nature. Mm -hmm. So people were seeing interconnections that they had never seen before. It's like certain blinders had been taken off the scientific gaze, that the peripheral vision opened up. And now we're finding, oh, there might be a reason why these species are cooperating. We hadn't thought of that. So it helped us see our lens differently as humans and as perceptors of nature. So, this kind of thinking, we talked about, you know, bien vivir, you know, the good life. Well, this is now having an effect on policy. So, what is the good life in Oslo, Norway? Well, the good life in Oslo, Oslo, Norway, now includes butterflies and pollinators. Mm. So it became the first bee-friendly city of any major status in Europe, in Mm. the world, actually. So public, private, municipal government individuals covenanted their backyards, their land, their window boxes, their spaces that they owned, so that there'd be a flyway for butterflies and for bees. And that's covenanted. So the people of Oslo felt our city depends on the biotic community. We cannot be fully happy and vibrant as a community if we are forcing bees into extinction. Therefore, we have to rebuild with the biotic community in mind. That's an evolution of thinking in our modern period. And that comes from people like Lovelock talking about systems cooperating for the flourishing of life. So there's a a positive trickle-down theory from these ideas into policy Mm -hmm. that we're seeing with a shaped worldview, with a reimagined understanding. That's why the imaginative world is so important. And we need artists, poets, visual artists, hip-hop artists to envision another world. I often ask my classes early in the semester, how many of you can imagine the end of the world? Almost every hand goes up because they're reading (laughs) about it, playing it on video games like this is just in their DNA now. Okay. How many of you can imagine the end of global capitalism? Very few. Mm. Why not? You can imagine the end of the earth, but not a different economic system. So where are our imaginations watered and where are they desertified? This is what we have to ask. Why can't we imagine a flourishing future for our planet? Well, there's a lot of vested interest in keeping that from happening.
0: So this might be on a slightly different um, topic, but I think it uh, relates, It's another. I have another Thomas Berry quote for you. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> He's a quotable man. He is. So he says, we might sometimes reflect and recall that the purpose of all our science, technology, industry, manufacturing, commerce, and finance is celebration, planetary celebration. This is what moves the stars through the heavens and the earth through its seasons. The final norm of judgment concerning the success or failure of our technologies is the extent to which they enable us to participate more fully in this grand festival. Do you agree with this, and are there specific technologies that you think have failed in this regard?
1: Yes, I do agree that this is a celebration, that ultimately we are called to a kind of celebration of life. I love a line from Bruce Springsteen. Where he says it ain't no sin to be glad you're alive mm-hmm. in a sense to embrace joy is not just if you are crazy or on drugs or have abandoned your social responsibility joy is as much a part of social change as the hard work of political action as is it emma goldberg who said if if i can't dance i don't want to be part of your revolution <laughs> like joy and celebration are key to this and what Thomas Berry brings is this kind of cosmological perspective. So he asks us not only to think about our bioregion, about our national kind of ecosystems, and about the Gaian system, but our role within the expanding universe. That that cosmos is part of our ecology as well. And if we occlude the stars and the formation of universes, etc., in our gaze, we're limiting our environmental imaginations. And so the more he looked at this, the more he showed a celebratory dimension to this. Incredible beauty that is now being discovered by Hubble telescopes, etc. Like when you see star formation and the, you know, the galactic gas, these are like amazing works of art over thousands, hundreds of thousands of miles. Like this is a celebratory reality at one level. And this is so important because as Martin Luther King said, unless we paint a future that people find attractive, they won't want to go there. Mm-hmm. The future that Tom Berry is imagining is, in this time of the Anthropocene, a choice that we have to make. Long before that term, Anthropocene, was used, he diagnosed this issue. He said, the human is now the geological driver of the planet. He said this over 30 years ago. He said, we have a choice, though. Because of species extinction, climate change, etc. We're the main engines of that. But we have a choice. It's not a fait accompli. We can continue what we're doing, and that, he said, will be the technozoic era, (laughs) and that will lead to waste world. We see the results of that. Or we can choose a different path. We can decide to befriend rather than besmirch the earth, to work with rather than against the life systems, and that will be the ecozoic era. And that will lead to Wonder World. So he had an option and choice there. And it was very simple about working with the systems of the planet. He also said, in the future, it's not going to be a question of, in politics, left or right, etc. It's going to be who's with the Earth and who's against the Earth. And the people who are with the Earth are going to be the ones who are, as we see now, defending our ecosystems and making the connection between impoverished persons and impoverished ecosystems. The notion of integral ecology that Francis is talking about, but the same kind of connection that the Leap Manifesto talked about here in Canada and that the Green New Deal is talking about in the United States. This is that merger in politics and in social justice and ecological thinking that people like Tom Barry had been talking about in a convergent way years ago. The celebratory nature is in that community, that we're not alone, that as distinct from Marxist understanding of alienation in the labor force, in a cosmological context, because we all have a single origin and a single origin story in the Big Bang, according to Tom Berry, Mm -hmm. we're never fully alienated because we're related to all that is. Secondly, there's a psychic spiritual dimension to all reality. Now, you don't have to be religious or part of a faith community to experience that you have a sense of a positive spirit that your spirits are lifted with certain vistas in nature etc we said because consciousness and that spiritual psychic dimension is not extrinsic to the universe that happened in the big bang so in those early particles of helium etc the antecedents of consciousness were there in those atoms So consciousness is in all reality, at different levels and different modalities. So we don't have the same consciousness as a snail, but a snail has consciousness. Mm -hmm. We don't have the same consciousness as humans as a tree, but a tree has a kind of psychic spiritual dimension that we're beginning to realize. And of course, many indigenous cultures understood that, celebrated it, and worked with that energy. And that's what we're being invited to. And that's what Tom Berry talks about in terms of celebration. Because you think you're alone. Boy, you're in Greenpeace, or you're just struggling to, you know, save some trees from destruction in your neighborhood. Well, what he's saying is you're not alone. That the life energies of the planet are oriented toward diversity and life. And connecting with those can be very powerful. Opening yourselves to those can be very empowering and liberating. And when we think that they're just inanimate realities that we're trying to help, we're not benefiting from that energetic joy that they radiate. And so this all seems kind of ethereal, mystical, and pre-modern to some people. But it's actually being recovered now in science and in neuroscience and in psychological health studies. This connectivity is part of who we are. And it's as if you go home and you don't see any of your relatives. They're all in another room. Is that joyous? When they come out and you start to sell, that's the joy. We're going into these ecosystems and we're acting as if these aren't our relatives. And we're not talking to them. Well, that's kind of lonely. But when you invite them into your life, like, great to see you. How you been? <laughs> then you feel that exuberance. No, nothing physically has changed. I haven't taken any vitamins. I haven't taken some kind of crazy caffeine drink. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I have energy seeing my relatives and friends. Mm-hmm. That's what this is about. That's the celebration. To realize you are not alone and to welcome in these energies that are trying to communicate with you. Because they all have the same goal of promoting life and a flourishing planet. That's where Gaia kicks in. In a sense that there is an energy on this planet that promotes life and it's not all red in tooth and claw horrible competition it also involves communal celebration
0: all right well there are other questions i would have uh, liked to ask you about but uh, i believe that we should stop this here something for future conversation yes yes (laughs) Um, Well, thank you very much again for joining us, Stephen Sharper, on The Green Majority.
1: My pleasure, and thank you very much for your thoughtful and perceptive probing. I really (laughs) appreciate it.
0: (laughs) Cheers. Thank you.